Welcome to the Safe Haven Podcast, and I'm so happy that you're listening. The Safe Haven Podcast is a space for you to be real, raw, emotional, vulnerable, hilarious, and or completely carefree. This podcast offers a space for stories to be shared about the lights and darks, highs and lows of life in a judgment-free zone. Join me and my powerful guests as we dive into a variety of conversations and topics. Listen from where you are, as you are. Think, laugh, cry along with us. Whether you're in your car, in the kitchen, chasing your kids, running your business, caregiving for someone that you love, getting a mani-pedi, while you're in the hospital, a treatment center, sitting on the deck, dock, or out for a run. These weekly stories and messages will hit you right in the heart, fill up your cup, and recharge your spirits. Joining me today is my friend, Michelle. And Michelle has a, a very lovely story with an outcome that is very lovely. It does start a little bit dark, but I am so happy that Michelle is here with us today. Um, so yeah, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today on the Safe Haven Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I feel really honored to have you here, big time. So Michelle, you have quite a story. And again, like I had said, it's quite a lovely outcome because you're such a beautiful human and I appreciate you and your friendship so much. Um, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your early family history. What yeah. can you tell me about that? So I grew up um, with drug addicted parents. My mother was a user while I was pregnant. Um, my dad is still a user. And um, my childhood was quite dark, I'd have to say. Uh, a lot of unsafe situations, a lot of self-raising, but um, that's not the person who I am today. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thankful for the journey that I've come on, uh, but like you said, the outcome Yeah, that's what's definitely... lovely about it, because I look at your past and, you know, the things that we've spoken about that you're going to be sharing today, and I'm just astounded at, you know, the incredible human that you are today. Having been Thank through you. what you've been through. Yeah, you're incredible. Thank you. So give us a bit of a brief on your, the early family history that you had. So now you've shared with, um, with our listeners that you had drug addicted parents. Mm -hmm. So, um, give us a bit of a brief on what, what that was like growing up. Sure. So up until recently, I wasn't really aware of all of the comings and goings of my life before the age of two. Um, so I recently had found out that my mom was a user while I was, while she was pregnant. Um, she was addicted to anything and everything. Um, it, it didn't matter what it was. Um, I was born at just, uh, over five pounds. I was five pounds, three ounces, and I was born addicted to, um, a mix of cocaine as well as opiates. Mm -hmm. So I was kept in the hospital for several weeks uh, following my birth, um, only to be released uh, back into my parents' care um, at uh, a pretty unstable time for my dad. He was in and out of employment. Uh, we didn't have a stable home. But uh, yeah, anyway, like I was saying, he, he was, his drug of choice at that time was cocaine. Um, but it wasn't until later on uh, when I was in preschool that he was in a head-on collision and was uh, prescribed opiates after that, mm -hmm. that that's what became his 
primary um, target for drugs. Mm -hmm. That's what he was addicted to. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, it's quite a lot to carry as a child, even, you know, growing up in an atmosphere like that. What are the things that you remember the most or what are the things that really, you know, stand out the most as being a young child and having that around you all the time? Mm-hmm. So my mom, um, she left when I was about two years old um, by choice. And so I was brought up mainly by my dad with a heavy influence of my family surrounding that. But um, honestly, Amanda, like I don't really remember my childhood up until grade six. In grade Mm -hmm. six, I moved um, up here to Halliburton. Uh, We moved from the city and we moved from my family. My family was primarily located in the city and they were main supports for me. So moving up to Halliburton um, in grade six was very difficult for me. And from grade six to grade eight, uh, those uh, those two years of my life two, three years of my life were extremely difficult. Um, I would have to wake myself up uh, to get on the school bus. Most days I would not wake up by myself. Uh, My dad would be passed out sleeping um, and I'd have to wake him up uh, because I can't remember her name, the secretary at the school, but she would call. Judy? I thought her last name ended with a P. Pergolas. Yes. Was that it? <laughs> she was in my grade six She's teacher. I don't know. <laughs> but I used to wake up to yeah. this phone call of Michelle, like she's missed school again. And, mm-hmm. oh, I would jump out of bed. I'd have to find my clothes. Oftentimes they were scattered on the ground. They were never put away. They weren't clean. I'd find what I needed to find. Go wake up my dad. Um, and that sometimes took a series of, of tries. And then he would drive me to school. And I would get dropped off. Um, I'd probably miss most of my first period uh, of school. And uh, that was how I would get myself to school. Um, But getting homework done, um, accomplishing regular kid things. Like I I didn't do any sports, nothing like that. My dad just wasn't uh, enough of a support to get me enrolled or to get interested. My main priority was just getting to school and back. Right, so even just a ride to and from these after school type things. Was yeah, that happen. was asking just too right, much. Too much. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So during that time, um, my dad, he had just gotten a settlement from the accident from when I was little. And so he had come into some money and most of that money had been spent on opiates. Um, he was no longer getting a prescription from any kind of physician. So he was sourcing his pills out on the street. He was buying them locally. Sometimes he would drive all the way down to Toronto. Like it didn't matter where he had to go. As long as he was able to get um, his drug of choice, he would do that. So a lot of my childhood was him gone or going somewhere. Sometimes I would be in the car with him. Um, a lot of those car rides, I remember him falling asleep, um, at the wheel because he was so out of it. Mm. Um, me having to wake him up, tap him on the shoulder, say dad, or put the window down, or let's turn the music up just to get him awake. Mm. Um, I remember having to grab the wheel a few times that, that stands out to me for my childhood, um, watching my dad used to or still does 
snort his drug of choice. Um, he doesn't ingest them like you're supposed to. He says that it gets into your bloodstream faster if he snorts it. So all the time he would have um, rolled up bills and crushed pills over by his his record collection that he would he would play. Mm-hmm. And any I just know remember any time I wanted to have friends over, um, the first thing I would do after getting the okay of having a friend come over would be to go and clean that corner up because it was so humiliating that it was just out there in the open. Like he just didn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at this time too, your friends are old enough to understand what this was or your dad's habits or... I just knew it wasn't good. Yeah. I just knew that um, it was secretive. It mm-hmm. wasn't supposed to be shared. Um, and I, I didn't want them knowing. And did he ever try and clean this stuff up on his own, you know? No. No. No, he just didn't care. Just didn't care, yeah. Yeah, I don't think he had the the capability of thinking about that. Mm-hmm. His main focus was to get high. And right. um, I don't think he really cared what that looked like for me. Mm-hmm. He, he definitely didn't. I know that. Right. Okay. Um, so were there times then, too where you felt unsafe in that environment? Absolutely. Um, or unsafe as a child growing up? There were times when we would have to go places where he would be doing like a drug pickup or a meetup or something like that. And I was in the car. But there was one time he had a friend named John. And at first I really liked John. Uh I liked that he had a a large German shepherd and his name was Khan and he looked so mean, but he was so friendly and I I loved that. So I loved going over to John's house. Um, It was the first time I ever saw like a deep fryer. He would cut up these like potatoes and make fries. I just thought it was the coolest thing. And then my dad would be passing out at John's place and it would be a school night and it would be two, three in the morning. And I, you know, sometimes I'd wake up and my dad's sleeping and John's there and John's awake. And I just, I, I know I didn't feel comfortable there. My mind doesn't really go there. I just, there was a, there was a breaking point for me when we woke up and I just had to get out of John's house. I couldn't explain it. I had to get out of John's house and waking my dad up repeat it over and over and John saying it's fine let him sleep like come sit down and me saying no like we have we have to go we have to go Mm -hmm. and this is just a typical like Tuesday Wednesday night like it just it it wasn't a safe environment for a kid I think at that point I was in grade four or five and um that was the last time we went to John's house I put my foot down after that um I didn't want to go there anymore Mm -hmm. no yeah and uh just his driving in general, like any time you were in a car with him, it was always unsafe. Um, yeah, I you remember early something earlier. You mentioned something about when you guys were moving. Uh, yeah. The you so we had rented a U-Haul to move up to Halliburton. My dad had to drive it back to Newmarket, and he was falling asleep at the wheel. And somebody had called the police because he was he was all over the road, and we were pulled over. And my dad was taken out of the car or the U-Haul and the police came over to my side and they said, you know, what is going on with your dad? 
I don't even know where this lie came from or what, but I said, you know, ever since his accident, he can't, he can't drive close to the yellow line. He always has to be on the right side of the road because uh, he's scared of getting hit by a car. And he never told me to lie. Mm -hmm. uh, not that he would be above that, but he, I just, I was too embarrassed to tell them he was high. Mm -hmm. I was too embarrassed to tell them that um, he had just snorted drugs. Like I, I couldn't share that shame with them. So it was better to, to lie to, to right. the police officers. Yeah. So what type of coping mechanisms, you know, growing up, what different things or people helped you cope with this? So for me, it would have been, um, I, bef before moving to Halliburton, like I said, I was surrounded by family. So my aunt and uncle, um, lived close by my grandparents lived close by and I had a, a, a big sister from the big and little sister program. Her name was Betty. And these people were, I would say my, my guiding light in life. They showed me what normal behaviors were. Um, I was able to sit down at a dinner table and have a family conversation about how was your day? What did everyone do? And regular bedtime routines, like someone checking in to make sure that you did your, you know, you brushed your hair and you brushed your teeth. And is there any laundry to be done? You didn't have to do your own laundry. So having those positive influences in my life from uh, members of my family, and especially Betty, like I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. Um, I think that I owe them almost everything just seeing how a regular life operates outside of my chaos made me realize I was in chaos, if mm -hmm. that makes any sense. So how often did you spend time with them? For Betty, it started off once a week. I was signed up to see her once a week, but I think she was a lot older. I mean, I think at the time I was in grade five, I think she was um, 40 years old, like she 40, 50 years old. She was old enough to know what was going on in my life. So she started to say, okay, well, you know, let's, let's do this three times a week. Let's do this four times a week. So I was going over to Betty's more and more. Um, and my aunt and uncle, like I would see them almost every weekend. I was very close in age with my cousin, Chris. Mm -hmm. So we were always together. I was able to see that. So it provided some kind of relief. So I don't have many childhood memories up until grade six because they were kind of happy times for me. But from six to eight, when I was separated from those influences, that's when I began to see there was an issue with my childhood and it was not normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how did that influence your happiness and your the image of yourself or how you wanted to portray yourself to everyone around you? So I believe, I believe after seeing, you know, the normal, the normal life, mm -hmm. I wanted that yeah. badly. I craved it. Mm -hmm. So now as an adult, um, I push for those dinners. Let's sit down together. We're going to talk. I, I want to have those family memories. I want to take lots of photos. I want to push being normal. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I grew up very shamed. Um, my house was so disgusting. My clothes were not clean, um, except for when I did my own laundry. But I was so humiliated and embarrassed that now as an adult, like I, I strive to be anything but that. And I might push myself too hard for um, to have a nice house or to have a nice vehicle when I don't necessarily need to have those things. Mm-hmm. But for me, I have to have them because that is what I didn't have as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I want that for my kids. And I, yeah. I want to have more than I didn't have. Mm-hmm. So I, I push probably harder than I, I need to be. I need to. Um, you mentioned a shift in high school with uh, grades, sports, dance, boyfriend. Mm-hmm. So at the end of grade eight, um, my dad had declined pretty bad. Uh, he was now uh, he was now collecting small handguns and and doing some pretty dangerous um, activities, which later ended him in jail. But seeing how unstable he was. Our arguments were increasing. I had to get out of the house. Um, I called my aunt and she, she knew my dad and I had been arguing. Um, but I, uh, I called her and I said, Diane, I have to get out of here. I can't do this anymore. I can't live with him. It's unsafe. Uh, my grades, I mean, I think I had like a D average. Mm-hmm. I said, can you help me? And she said, yes. Like, do you want to live here? Do you want to come here and start high school here? Start fresh? I said, yes, I do. And that was the best decision I could have ever made. Um, I moved in with them and did my four years of high school in Newmarket. And I excelled for the first time in my life. I was involved in extracurricular activities. I was participating. I was so happy. I had a boyfriend. I, I, I got an award for um, extra community care, and that I got a scholarship through that, and that helped me through university. And that just was a new person that I had introduced myself to, and I felt so light. I didn't have to worry about someone's problems or or anything. I mean, I had regular chores like a kid would. I had an allowance, and um, it was the first time in my life at that point that I was free yeah. with, with no worry. And I was able to sleep. I had a regular bedtime. Like it, uh, those were probably one of the, the highlights of my life was just getting out mm-hmm. of that house, putting that behind me yeah. and, and living a normal life. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't doubt it. You also mentioned dance was very pivotal for you too. Yeah, so the high school I went to, it was kind of a an arts school. Mm-hmm. So they had um, like they're very much uh, art oriented. So they had uh, their dance section, and they had their drama section, and they had their just regular arts, and they always pushed you very hard um, to do well. And I had a really good bond with my dance teachers and I took dance because I knew people in Halliburton had taken dance. I could never afford it, but it was now free at high school. So I thought I'll sign up in grade nine. I have an elective, (laughs) like let's do it. And I loved it. And I signed up for every single dance that I could possibly do in that four years. And, um, 
it was a passion that I didn't know that I had. And I, we would do a show at the end of each year mm-hmm. and it was something I was very proud of. Very you. proud of. Yeah. yeah. And to have had that, that switch, that immediate switch and transition. That's so mm-hmm. neat. Um, tell us about university, time in university and how that was the next, the next shift, the next step. Yeah, so I graduated um, and went to Laurier University and took criminology. At first, I signed up to be a teacher, um, but found out that that wasn't in the cards for me. I took one intro to crim class and loved it and was so fascinated by it. It was a passion. So I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I'm going to do it. But those four years uh, were... A really freeing time for me as well because it was the first time I could be independent and do what I wanted to do and make my own mistakes and not have to pay for someone else's mistakes and own up to uh, what I had done. And I found a clique of girls um, that I'm still so close with today Mm -hmm. during that time. Um, I would consider them more like family than than my own family. Mm-hmm. So I really found myself in university and I I owe everything to those years, I think. I started off maybe a little rougher than I should have, but <laughs> yeah. I definitely uh had come out a stronger woman for it in the end. Especially at my graduation um sitting down and talking with my family after and saying like, we never thought Mm -hmm. that we would ever be sitting here and talking about you walking across and getting your diploma and yeah, like it's amazing. It was just, you know, yeah, a pivotal moment. And it was at that moment that I, I know that I could be like, just like anyone else that Mm -hmm. I did it. And uh, I was, very proud of myself. Yes. Very of proud of myself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a huge accomplishment just graduating in general, but now having just, been through your journey to yeah. excelled like that is fabulous. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a regular path for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just I just hold that diploma in my hand or that degree is you know, it's 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 on my wall. I look at it all the time and mm-hmm. I'm so proud of myself because I never thought I would get there. Right. Well, we see so many different patterns, right, of people that generally follow their parents' footsteps. And so now it would have just been so easy, right, to fall into. But now with that guidance that you've been provided through throughout your life, mm-hmm. to be where you're at now is just... Well, that's exactly right. I mean, so oftentimes we see people in the vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have a, an abuser as a parent, like you're more likely to be an abuser yourself mm-hmm. or a drug user mm-hmm. um, or teen pregnancy. Like we see those cycles all the time. And it's only been since university, like that I've stopped to reflect, like, why didn't I go down that path as well? Mm-hmm. Why was mine different? And it's definitely those positive role models that I had in my life. I could see what normal was Mm -hmm. and know that my situation was not normal. I was able to escape my reality, Mm -hmm. even if it was just for a night, to know that life doesn't have to be like this. Absolutely. No. And yeah, that resilience has obviously carried you very, very far. You you really need to honor that because you're... 
You're a very resilient woman. Thank you. You've come through a lot. Um, tell us about some traveling. You did a little bit of traveling. Yeah, I did. Um, after university, I had just ended a relationship and I felt like I needed to just get out and see the world. I'd never had a passport before (laughs) and I had signed up for one on a whim with a girlfriend. So now that I had it, I had to use it. So my first trip was to Korea and I went to go teach English there for a year. Mm -hmm. Didn't like kids. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't like kids. How old were the kids? (laughs) They were three. Uh Uh-huh. Three and four. Okay. And then in the afternoon, I did the afternoon program. So they would be anywhere from grade two to grade eight. And I was teaching them English. Um, But then there was this kid, Eric. I just loved him. He was uh, so sweet. And then I kind (laughs) of turned and said, okay, maybe kids aren't so bad. (laughs) So I spent uh, a year in in Korea, right in Seoul. And um, that year was a a pretty messy year. It was... uh, (laughs) Uh, a lot of bar hopping. I yes. saw a lot of uh, of a lot of bars, but yeah. that's okay. Um, it's all part of the journey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I wasn't wasn't quite ready to go home yet. I I knew I wanted to do another adventure, so I heard about au pairs. So I signed up for an au pair website, and I came across a lady, um, Bernie, in Australia, mm-hmm. and she was doing uh, her PhD. Um, in criminology, and she was working with Aboriginal inmates and assessing their withdrawal rates in prison. And she put this on her profile. She also had a husband who was a police officer. So by me looking at her profile, she was able to see my profile. And she messaged me and said, hi, like, looking at your profile, you did criminology, you're working with kids now maybe you could come over and be a part-time au pair for us, but would you want to work here? I said, absolutely. Yes, Yes, please. So right after my contract ended in Korea, I came home for two weeks and took off to Australia. And we were up in Cairns, so the top right there, Mm -hmm. East Coast. And I spent a year in prison. (laughs) And... um, I would follow these guys from when they would be brought into the watch house and I would start my interviews with them. Mm -hmm. I would also measure their cortisol samples for uh, stress. Wow. And then I would follow them into prison, uh, into Lotus Glen, and then conduct the same interviews for the course of 28 days. But I also facilitated workshops at the actual prison. Um, on uh, withdrawal and Aboriginal inmates and worked on getting a program together for the inmates that worked for them culturally and was significant to them. Um, and it was, it was a great time. That's I mean, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So then after that, um, I still wasn't ready to come home yet. So uh, I'd met a girlfriend over there, Kate, and we decided we were going to do a Southeast Asia tour. And so we did the Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam mm-hmm. circle, and uh, that was fun. Amazing. That was really fun. By Amazing. the end of that, I was ready to come home yeah. a little bit. <laughs> and then, so when you came home, where did you end up? Well, throughout the years that I was away, um, I was talking to my now husband. Um, I didn't know you started talking to him when you were over there. Yeah. So I, I had 
just before I'd left for uh, Korea, we were talking um, because we knew each other at the yeah. summer that we met. Yes. That's the first summer I met Steve. And so just before I'd taken off, I thought, hey, I'm at the cottage for a week or two. I wonder what that kid Steve's up to. And we got together and we started talking. So the whole time I was in Korea and Australia and Asia, I was talking to him and he was so supportive about me finding myself and traveling and doing something carefree. And I thought that's the person I want to be with. Mm-hmm. Um, He's a great man. To support that goal. Yeah. And so while I was away, we talked, we thought, you know, if I'm going to move back, I'm going to move back probably near my family, mm-hmm. be long distance. Oh, the hell with it. Let's just move in together. <laughs> so we did. And so day one of dating was living together mm-hmm. and I wouldn't change that for the world. No. No. And a few years later, we were engaged, married, yeah. and now have a baby and baby on the way. Yeah. Pregnant. There's a second one. So yeah. special. I'm actually curious about, um, I wanted to just circle back to with Steve. So how was it introducing Steve to your past and your story and your dad in particular? Um, Steve is a pretty calm guy. Mm -hmm. So telling him was easy. I mean, you can tell him anything and he would, uh, be so understanding. He might not say a lot, but you know that he's in your corner Mm -hmm. and he's always been in my corner. So uh, it was the first time introducing Steve to my dad's house that was really embarrassing to me. So the first time he met my dad we joked about it after it was at our family cottage and we were just kind of like, yeah, like that's my dad. Mm -hmm. But it was having to go to my dad's house and see the state of which he was living and how, uh, how unorganized and unclean his home was that, that was humiliating for me. And uh, warning Steve, you know, you know, I don't know what his house is going to be like, prepare yourself for the worst. And, just really putting it out there that this was going to be gross and terrible. It it felt shameful, even though I'm not my dad, I'm not responsible for his mistakes or who he is, and I'm so far removed from him. But just having to go there and and share that with him, I was very, I, I was humiliated. And I there's that shame again. I talk about this sometimes that uh, I can't shake it. And one day I will, but it's still there today. And, um, I mean, we, we walked away from the house and had a few laughs about my dad and, and carried on like that was it. But, um, Steve's always been really great about where I've come from. And, um, he knows that the family that we're building together Mm -hmm. is going to be nothing like the family that I had had as a kid. So having him know the importance of we're taking a million photos and we're going to go, you know, and do this field trip. He gets it. And he's very present for those moments. And, um, so he, he values that too. He time. does. He yeah. really does. Yeah. yeah. He's away right now, isn't he? Yeah. He's out in Alberta, um, out at the Peace River fire. Yeah. So he's been gone almost a week now. Yeah. So he'll be gone probably another week and a half, two weeks. Yeah. And then come back. And then comes back. And then will he have to go back or is that just dependent? You just don't know. Just don't know. No. Life of a firefighter. Yeah. Holy smokes. Well, he's Literally. Doing a good deed. Yeah, no, he's doing a good deed. He very much is. 
Yeah. Um, so do you, do you have a relationship with your dad now? I don't. Um, after I came back from traveling, um, I was ready to break ties with him. Mm -hmm. Um, I now stood on my own two feet. I knew I didn't need him. I didn't want him in my life. He was offering me nothing that was helping me out with my mental health. Um, anytime we would talk, I would, I would decline. So I, I had to just give him the choice. I said, either you get sober or you're out of my life. I'm happy to help you get sober, but I want nothing to do with you if you're going to continue down this path. Did you feel like that was an easier decision because you had Steve in your corner? No, at this point, this was just for me. I, I recognize this about myself that he would, um, Amanda, he would reach out with really volatile letters to me, like blaming me for things. And they make no sense. These letters, they have, there's no, there's no bearing to them. They were just harmful letters because in his state of mind, he doesn't really know what he's saying. He's so far removed. Mm -hmm. So I would get these letters, you know, saying your mother would sell you for a $40 piece of crack. Like, and that would just be the sentence. You don't even know where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. So I just, I had to say, that's it. No more. I cannot do this with you anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not good for me. And, um, after I would receive these letters, I would, I would, my mood would change and it would change significantly for about a week, week and a half. And then I would come out of it. Mm-hmm. So it was this a very much like a roller coaster effect. And Steve recognized this in me as well. And we talked and we said, it's just not healthy. Like you can't do this anymore. So I cut him out of um, my life. But then in 2017, um, we had our, our firstborn Mason. And I thought that this might be an opportunity to change my dad's life, to turn it around. So I reached out to him and I said, you're Mason's grandpa. Like you, you have a choice. You can either be clean or not, Mm -hmm. but you can't, you can't be under the influence if you're going to be in Mason's life. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that might've been some incentive for him to get clean, some sort of driver. Mm -hmm. And it was his, the first time meeting Mason, we met at a public place that I was comfortable and my dad was in, in pretty good spirits. Like he was okay. When was the last time you'd seen your dad at this point? Probably two years before that. Okay. Two. Yeah. Like at a family function, like I wasn't going over to visit and nothing like that. It okay. would be like a family function that he would go to or mm-hmm. something. But, um, the first time meeting him, he seemed okay. So I thought, okay, well maybe, maybe he's coming around. Like he just might not be, he, he's definitely buying drugs, but he might just not be on them right now. And then it was the second time that he was meeting Mason. We were at my grandpa's apartment. Um, my dad was so out of it. Um, he was passed out on the, on the lazy boy. He had drugs leaking out of his nose. He was drooling. Steve, like, hit me on the shoulder and said, this is the worst I've ever seen your dad. I said, yeah, we won't be staying long. We were sitting on the couch, uh, talking with my grandpa and my dad went to the bathroom and came back and he stumbled over and he went to go touch Mason's face. And I looked at his hand and he had white residue all over his fingers. And the mama bear inside me came out and I smacked his hand. We left right away. And then I told him if he came near our family, like I'd 
I'd be placing a restraining order against Mm -hmm. him. I said, you damaged me enough um, as a child. You put me through hell and back. And there is no way I am letting this innocent, vulnerable child be a part of this. Mm -hmm. So if if you're not going to get help, then you're going to be alone. He did not take that well. Um, It took him several attempts to try to contact me before he realized that there was going to be no contact between us. And I saw him briefly at my grandpa's 90th party uh, at the end of last year, but we didn't speak to one another and I don't plan on speaking to him Mm -hmm. until he gets clean. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think will ever happen. No. Well, when you look at, you know, you and I just turned 31 and it's been the majority of your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very long time to have had opportunities, you know, and moments where you could have made those changes and still not make them. It's just so sad because he's got a beautiful grandson that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, provides us with so much joy children do. And he's just missing out on that. Mm -hmm. And it's his loss. Oh, for sure it is. Yeah. Yeah, your family's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. And you're, so you're due with your second on August 3rd? August 3rd is the due date. Yay. Yeah. And do you know if it's a boy or a girl? We decided not to find out with this one. Okay, very, it's a big surprise. Because you guys had a gender reveal, didn't you, for Mason? We did. We did a big firework um, yeah. show. And at the end, uh, we had blue fireworks go off. And that was, that was something. So special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, not, uh, not doing that this time? Do you no. have any feelings, one or the other? Usually I do. I'm really good with uh, intuition when it comes to people's, uh, with gender, with their births. But this one, I just feel like it's going to come early. Yeah. I don't know, boy or girl. Before I was pregnant, I thought for sure I see two boys. Um, but I don't know. I will just have to Very find exciting. out. <laughs> so yeah, your motherhood journey has been quite exciting, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's so beautiful watching your children uh you know, turn from this little potato into something that walks around and, you know, wants to do things, tells you what they need. Like, it's just, it's a miracle. It certainly helps when they're that cute. (laughs) He's a little ham. (laughs) Thank Um, you. I've got to ask you, um, being a mom and you you haven't really mentioned your mom. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about opening up about that? Yeah, we can talk about that for sure. (laughs) Um, I mentioned earlier on that I didn't really know her. I didn't know anything about her really. She left at an early uh, time in my life. I was about two when she had finally left. Mm -hmm. But, uh, well, it's a crazy story. So, a year ago, one of my mom friends in our group... uh, started talking about the TLC show and they said how cool would it be to be reunited with a family after that long the time you didn't even know about one one another oh this is like what the show was about on TLC yeah yeah so I thought you know maybe I'll just share that I don't know my mom okay and so I did she said well I bet you I can find out about her if you tell me a little bit about her Uh So I don't really know anything, but I'll ask my aunt and I'll get back to you. My aunt would know. So I gave uh, my, one, my mom friend some information and within five minutes she found an obituary and it was for my mom's brother. And there were seven siblings listed 
and in the obituary my mom was listed too and it said predeceased so she'd passed and this was the only bit of family that I knew from my mom's side like I knew nothing and now I found out that she had all these siblings and there was a name that stood out in the list in this obituary and I thought I have to reach out to this woman there's something about her I have to reach out to her mm-hmm. so I reached out to her and I said hi my name's Michelle I don't know if you know me if this message is not for you then just disregard it but I'm just looking for my mom Deb I saw your name was in an obituary and I just want to know if you know her and she said oh my god Michelle I haven't seen you since you were one we have your sister I said what my sister and I didn't know I had a sister this is just last year this is last year so we can get into the sister a bit in a, in a minute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but when my sister and I reunited, my my aunt gave me a folder that had everything to do with my mother and all the, the CAS files, all the court documentation, all of my aunt's attempts to try to adopt me, like everything was in this folder and she gave it to me and she said you might want to sit down with your sister and review this stuff. You might not want to, but it's your file and you can do what you wish with it. And so I didn't think that I would be bothered by the file. Like I've always removed myself from my childhood and have put on a barrier. Mm -hmm. But reading this file with my sister at our cottage last year just killed me. Mm -hmm. It was really hard to take in. Um... There was a lot of discussion about um, how unsafe of an environment it was with my mother, um, suffering from mental illness, being a heavy drug abuser. It was just an unfit environment for a kid. And then going back and forth from my mom to my dad to my mom and dad going to Sudbury where my mom was from down to London down to Toronto like the environment was not stable and it was not consistent um there were stories in there where my mom would be up when my mom would have me she'd be up all night trying to source drugs or line up Mm -hmm. some sort of income and I would be sleeping and you know, she was up all night. And then when it was time for me to get up, my mom would just be falling back asleep. And I was up hungry. My diaper was soaked and I was crying for hours. And then the neighbors would have to come in and wake my mom up, call my grandparents. And I would get picked up by my grandparents. And what's really outstanding is how this was acceptable to the court system for two years Mm -hmm. um you know she would leave her hot curling irons on the ground and the cas worker said deb you can't do that you have a crawling child and i burnt my hands uh on the curling iron i burnt my hands on her cigarettes like i just she'd forget to feed me one one bus trip up to sudbury she just decided i didn't need a bottle anymore and that was it like she just, it wasn't, it wasn't safe. And, and reading that file, 
and having to digest that information while I was a new mom mm-hmm. was so heartbreaking for me because, mm-hmm. I mean, you look at a child and you see how innocent they are mm-hmm. and that there's so much potential there. I mean, I, I'm just picturing my son right now mm-hmm. and it's just, it's so awful to think that that happens to children yeah. and that, that was, um, that was an eye-opening experience because I knew that it was bad growing up around my mom, but I didn't know how bad. Mm-hmm. And obviously you had no idea that these files had existed. I didn't. No, no, my aunt. I um, I had asked her about it yeah. when I think I was ready, but there were lots of times we were talking about growing up and my mom and there was a lot of vague information but Mm -hmm. when I needed it and asked for it she provided it for me so maybe she just had to wait until I was ready until you're ready yeah yeah so after we read those files I um had a campfire with Jess my sister and we burnt them I never wanted to look at them again yeah that's powerful that's really powerful yeah so what has your relationship been like with Jess then? I like just meeting her. How cool is that? So it's a long drive to Sudbury, Amanda. You're <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, when I when I reached out to her, I I couldn't get up there fast enough. I was like, I'm I'm, I'm coming today, like in my head. Mm-hmm. But how do you say that to a stranger? How do you plan for your first yeah. meet and greet? And yeah. Jess was very like reserved about the whole thing at first she was like yeah like we can meet this summer and I'm thinking no like we need to meet like yesterday mm-hmm. and so I pushed a little bit uh, we met we discovered each other halfway through May last year and I pushed for okay I've got a weekend in June does that work for you and she said yeah like come on up and so I had Mason in tow we were driving the four and a half hours to Sudbury and it's a long drive. I mean, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to meet my sister. I always wanted a sister. Uh, well, I've always wanted a sibling just to mm-hmm. coexist in the madness with. I yeah. wanted to be able to relate to someone. Yeah. Um, but now I'm I'm going to meet my sister. And uh, finally arrive at her place and we pull up and she walks out. And we don't look much alike. But her eyes are identical to mine, and it was it was chilling, and to be able to give her a hug, like it, yeah. it's an indescribable feeling. I can't imagine. And um, you know, you kind of wonder, like, okay, now that I'm four hours from home, like, I hope that this goes well because mm-hmm. we're you know planning a weekend together, and it went off without a hitch. Like it was so natural, and like our humor and. Uh, our vibes like everything about the weekend was perfect and I couldn't have uh I couldn't have asked for a better weekend uh or a better meeting like you know it could have went so bad like Mm. how do you connect with someone you've never met after 30 years and so the age difference is three years three years Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, what about mannerisms or senses of humor personality anything like that yeah our humor is very similar we're a bit offside with our humor (laughs) (laughs) and um 
we're very much uh, open to saying our truths and our opinions when they need to be spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's different uh, in other ways. Like her style is very different from most people's, but from mine as well. <laughs> I'm very much a lover of neutrals. Yeah. She's like, let's the brighter the pink, the better. <laughs> and I love that about her. But um, there's some similarities. I mean, we both share a love for cosmetics. Apparently our mom did too. Um, but we both feel like we possess an intuition about things. And that was a nice connecting feature there. Um, but she's very outdoorsy. She likes to ATV and camp. I'm not so much like that. But um, I have a feeling that wherever we are, we will enjoy it because yeah. we're together. That's really beautiful. Do you have any plans coming up to see her? Uh, we did discuss maybe heading out to Mexico at the beginning of December. Um, I'm committed. We're still in discussion on whether she can make it or not uh, as a family trip, but uh, I'd like to see her at some point this summer. Uh, I yeah. think she was saying that um, her and a family member would like to come up and spend a weekend mm-hmm. at the cottage, but mm-hmm. my free time before baby... Uh, is a little bit yeah. limited, so <laughs> we'll see. It's going to go zero to hundred very shortly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we talk every day, so it's it's nice to feel like she's with you every day. For sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Oh, Michelle, I've loved this so much. Like, thank you so much for your vulnerability and just being able to open up and share your stories. Oh, that's big time. Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, it was a real honor for you to ask me. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely, to be honest, didn't think there was anything special about my story. But if there's anything that I've learned is if you can be that positive light for somebody or a, a role model or anything, just be kind to one another because mm-hmm. you just never know what is happening behind closed doors. And there are so many of my friends um, you know, growing up that you don't even know what you mean to me, uh, what you gave me. You'll never know because you were just kind. Yeah. Kindness can just make someone's day. It can make their year. It can change their life. And it it did. Yeah, it definitely did. did. So thank you so much for having me. It was really nice to share this. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And I know that this is going to it's going to really open up people's hearts. I really think even if just, you know, the message, like you said, was those positive connections with people in your life and just that resilience and never giving up and being able to chase that positive, you know, chase the positive and just believe in yourself so much because clearly you've got so much self-belief. I look at the, the beautiful life that you guys have created for yourselves. And like you said, you, you've been through so much dark, but there's so much light in your life right now. So, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. So Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Safe Haven Podcast. Please subscribe, like, share, and comment as you follow along. Your generous support keeps the sharing and messages coming your way. Follow us on Instagram at the Safe Haven Podcast. Always fill your cup first, love yourself deeply, and listen again. Thank you so much.